This is NBA Sound System Live, featured on NBA.com sites around the world and archived on the NBA Sound System podcast feed, where you get your podcasts by searching NBA Sound System. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, each with the handle at NBA Sound System, or visit us at NBASoundSystem.com for more. Now, to the host for this edition of NBA Sound System Live, Carlin Gay and Micah Adams. Michael, my man, here we go. We are rocking and rolling on another Tuesday live edition of NBA Sound System, uh, the final one. Uh, in uh, in our recap session of The Last Dance, all 10 episodes are out and available on Netflix worldwide. If you're listening in the United States, uh, you can get them through the ESPN app. But, uh, you know, it, it has been a great five weeks and a five weeks that really flew by, Micah. I can't believe it's already over. I feel like it was just yesterday uh, we were talking about how excited we were to sort of jump in and relive it all. I'm now I'm now kind of wishing they wouldn't have done like two episodes every Sunday. I feel like we, we could have had five more weeks here. We could have really stretched this bad boy out for like two and a half months. I really think you're overestimating the patience of the, uh, the general public here, uh, <laughs> even without sports. I don't know that we could have waited. There's people that would have, you know, found leaks online uh, and not waited for, for the full 10 week episodes. Uh, but, on this on this very show, we will actually talk about uh, our, our thoughts on the last dance, what we took away from it. Uh, had Jordan and the Bulls stayed together, would they have won seven in 1999? Would they have gone for the four peat uh, in 1999? We'll give you our thoughts on that. The Jazz they show up for a little blip in the documentary. Did they deserve a little bit more love? And were the Pacers truly the toughest team the Bulls had to face? in their run all that and more right here on the live edition of nba sound system uh and i guess we got to start with our takeaways right micah like what 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 now that it's out now that it's there now that it's in front of your face uh what's the biggest thing that stuck out to you out of the first the full 10-part documentary i i keep coming back to the idea of just how hard it was for them and it just it just looked so draining and like i'm exhausted for them uh watching sort of what that team looked like especially at the end of the third one uh in 93 and then the sixth and final one uh in at the end of 98 and you know you you just think about how quickly teams sort of uh rise and fall today like LeBron and D Wade played together for four years and it was just over like that and then you know Golden State's obviously a uh a, a tremendously different example, just given the Durant departure and the the nature of injuries, and who knows whether or not they'll be back. I just, I it just feels like a, a completely other world and universe uh, in which a team would be able to gut it out for as long as Chicago was able to. Uh, I just, I, I always, rem- I remembered in the moment thinking that man, it just like it looks so easy for them when really it was anything but. Did that give you more appreciation for some of the teams uh, that were able to three-peat as well in, in league history? Like when you think back, uh, you know, the Celtics and the Lakers of the 80s, everyone loves them. Everyone talks about how dominant they were in that era. They never were able to three-peat. 
You know, the, the Lakers were able to repeat. The Celtics were never able to repeat. They only won one, took a year off, won another one. So they never had that chance to, to, to defend and successfully defend their title. Lakers were able to do that. The Pistons were able to do that. And then we saw the Bulls go through it in this documentary, the first part of that, the 90s decade, and then the back end of it with three-peats. Did that give you more appreciation for the teams from the early 80s or even, you know, the Celtics way back when, when there was like three teams in the NBA? It does. And, and actually, the, the, the first thing that I think about when you, when you bring that up is I, I think of Shaq and Kobe uh, because, you know, they, they win those three titles. And at, at times, especially in the playoffs, it just it just looks easy. I know that they had a couple of tough series in there, uh, you know, Portland specifically. Uh, but I think that there's this like nagging, lingering feeling of like, oh, man, like what if they could have stayed together? How many more titles could they have won? And just like you watch what Jordan and the Bulls and, and Pippen and all those guys went through, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can win more than three in a row. Like it's just so many things have to go right uh, for for that to even be a conversation. Like uh, you know, people. I, I think sometimes I think about what would have happened if Golden State would have won in 2016, right? Then they probably wouldn't have gotten Kevin Durant. And then like, okay, do they win in 2017 without Durant? Probably not. I just, I don't know. I think that winning three in a row is just so insanely hard and taxing and exhausting. Uh, it's it's kind of just made me rethink uh, uh, in a lot more flattering terms about all those teams that you talked about uh, that were able to actually pull it off because it's just, it's so hard. Yeah, and that's, that's for me, my biggest takeaway of the whole uh, you know, 10-part documentary isn't that Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time, isn't that uh, my new thoughts on Scottie Pippen and that he's appropriately placed in history and he's not underrated by any stretch or any means, it's that Phil Jackson is the greatest coach of all time. Uh, that was I knew that at the time. I think I'm confirming it now. For him to keep that team together with everything that was going on around them, with the celebrity that Michael was, to have guys who obviously wanted more, uh, you know, credit in 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 the media or whatever the case may be, uh, guys like Horace Grant to keep them all on the same page, enough for them to threepeat the first time and then to run it back and you know with a completely different unit uh, with only Scotty remaining to have Michael just. All of a sudden, come back! Like it wasn't like he was, uh, you know, a part of that building team. Like they had came to terms with the fact that Michael was done, and we, they were never going to have him again. And had to completely change their mentality when he shows back up and decides he wants to play again and build that team around Michael once again. Uh, I mean, that to me is 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 great work by Phil Jackson. Keep them together. Dennis Rodman doing whatever he was doing off the court. Uh, I mean, to keep everybody engaged for three championships is is incredible to keep the noise down that little small clip that we saw of phil jackson dealing with the media when they were asking him whether or not he was going to discipline dennis rodman for showing up on wcw nitro to me was one of the <laughs> best uh clips of, of the doc because you you truly saw how it, the confidence that phil stood there with with you know 20 30 reporters around him dying for him to slip up uh and, and create some sort of controversy leading into a, a, a finals game it wasn't just a regular season game. A finals game was incredible. That was the leadership that that team needed. And, you know, he, he didn't just prove, uh, you know, that he was one of the greatest coaches of all time at that point. He went on in another era and did it in another decade with 
two guys in Kobe and Shaq who also he had to deal with their egos and, and, and building a team around them and, uh, you know, a different style of basketball completely and then come back and do it again with Kobe and Powell going to three straight finals and winning two of those. To me, and, Phil Jackson yeah. is the greatest coach of all time. I, I agree. And and I think that it's the the thing that I, I think is different than with Shaq and Kobe because, look, Phil arrives in L.A., and, you know, he's obviously got all the bling and all the hardware and he's got the resume that kind of what like whatever he says is going to fly. No matter what Shaq says, no matter what Kobe says, no matter what anyone else. At that point, it's Phil Jackson. Like in 1990, Phil Jackson is not Phil Jackson yet. Right. So for a guy who's essentially a first time coach, I know he had he was on the bench there for for two seasons as an assistant and was able to get to Jordan and coached in the CBA. And uh, the stuff about him coaching in Puerto Rico was just incredibly fascinating. I can't believe that they had actual footage uh, of Phil Jackson coaching in Puerto Rico uh, in yeah. timeouts. That, that's another thing that is just like, why Why is that being recorded in in the 1980s <laughs> in, in Puerto Rico? But uh, is there, like, for him to get Michael Jordan at the absolute peak of his powers, to buy into the idea of the triangle, to willingly give the ball up, when at that point... Who's he giving the ball up to? He's giving the ball up to a bunch of guys that haven't won anything yet. And so for, for Jordan to be able to buy into Phil, I, I can't think of another coach that that would have that would have been able like if they have any other coach, there's no way they win six titles, right? Like I don't know. Pat, Pat right. Riley, maybe? I don't know. No, I don't even think with Pat Riley, to be honest with you. I think Phil was the perfect coach because it wasn't just figuring out how to get Michael to to play within the triangle and trust the triangle and trust his teammates. It was also trying to figure out how to keep his teammates patient enough for Michael to figure that out. Like, how disgruntled would you be if you're open and Michael's shooting over triple teams and you know you can knock down a shot through an 82-game series season? That would be frustrating. In, in, in tough games in the playoffs when you know you can contribute, that would be frustrating. For Phil to keep those teammates engaged, for Phil to keep Scottie Pippen engaged and his confidence at a level where he could go out and be you know, the best, you know, uh, you know yeah. sidekick in, in league history is, 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 I think that's a genius more so than kind of helping Michael out. Imagine, imagine, here's a fun. What if, uh, imagine if Phil Jackson came along 25 years later, uh, and then it is the coach that's, that lands in Oklahoma city with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. You think he would have been able to, uh, to get those guys to get along nicely to string together some legendary, uh, some legendary Man. runs. How many how many duos in NBA history like <laughs> that that Phil Jackson really could have turned around just by you know being able to to, to figure out to get yeah. through them? Jerry Sloan is a great coach, but imagine you know Stockton Malone you know playing under Phil or or you know Sean Kemp and, and Gary Payton in the nineties playing under Phil. What 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 Charles Barkley would look like if he had a chance to play with Phil Jackson? Maybe he has a a, a ring on his finger. Um, it, you know it, it's 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 crazy to think about all these guys. And I hate to do the LeBron, uh, you know, Michael comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, what if LeBron James had go. a coach or played under a coach of the caliber of a Phil Jackson? Maybe he would have more rings than he currently has. Well, he he just keeps running all of his coaches out of town after what two or three seasons. <laughs> he can't ever have the same guy for. I mean, even even I mean, he, even Eric Spolster. I didn't he show up to Miami and he wanted Pat Riley to come back down to the bench. Yeah. Uh, so he stuck I, I think I. I think the uh, the degree to which MJ was able to just fully trust and invest himself in Phil Jackson, I think should just 
shows just a, a tremendous unwavering amount of support between player and coach that I, I don't think that there's really anything like that uh, in today's league. I, I, I'm not, yeah. I, I think that the, the last example of that would have been Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich, but I think you go on down the list right now, I, I don't think that there's anything remotely close to, uh, to the connection that those two guys uh, were really able to have from day one. Yeah, it, it really truly was uh, from day one. So that that's my giant takeaway uh, from the ten episodes of the last dance. Uh, in the last in, in the last two episodes, episodes nine and ten, we see the, the the culmination of what was a dynasty, and what really stuck out for me was MJ admitting to us that the best version of him was in 1998, his last year in Chicago, uh, kind of saying that. His body wasn't the same. Obviously, he wasn't the same athlete, but he was able to control the game with his mind, and that's when he thought that he had, you know, he was at the peak of his powers. And it's crazy to think about the fact that he was at the peak of his powers in '98, and then we don't see him play for like four years after that. I, I, I look. I understand what Jordan is saying, and I, I think that if you would like to say that. Maybe that's at the at that point in time the game had slowed down like it had never before, or that is the best version of himself as a leader, just given everything going on around the team with Scottie Pippen's injury and the you know the this timing like that he waited and no, I just there, there's just there's no way that that's the best version of Michael Jordan. It's just not. Wait a second. Wait a second. How are you going to tell the man how who's the best version of himself? How are you listen, doing that? You listen, call him a liar? Yeah, I, I am calling. I am. I'm gonna say that ten year old Micah Adams in 1998 had a better view on uh, MJ's status than than the man himself. No, I don't know. You just you you, you no. You just you, you look. You I, on one hand, you look at that 98 team, and like it is absolutely insane. By the way, that that team won the NBA title because you go down. I'm looking at it right now. So, you know, Scottie Pippen comes back in the middle of January. Up until that point, right, they're somehow 24 and 11. Uh, Tony Kukoc is second on the team in scoring. Their third leading scorer is Luke Longley at that point. Like, what if a team had Luke Longley as its third best offensive player uh, in, in on any other team, they'd be like, they'd be playing for ping pong balls. That that is now that's a little disrespectful uh, to 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 a guy who. Um, not only started on those championship teams, but you know he he was he was the face of Australian basketball at the time. He was the face of an entire nation at the time. Don't do that to Luke. Carl, they, he was a good player. They won it. They won an NBA title where, for the better part of a half a season, their second best player was a thirty-six-year-old power forward who averaged four point seven points per game, to the degree that. Michael Jordan got so pissed off when Dennis Rodman fouled out in a game that he's looking at him, yelling at him, why are you leaving me alone? And that team somehow freaking won the NBA title? Yeah. Man, it's, I, it's, I don't know. It's, it I, is crazy. I, it's it is like, crazy. It's like, it is crazy. It's like two things can be true. I think like you can look at that Bulls team and just say like, oh my God, like how did how on earth did that team win it all? But then you can also kind of you know, you give Jordan the the he obviously gets the benefit of the doubt, right? Like he's the greatest player of all time. He won the scoring title, even if MJ isn't MJ. Uh, you know, he's he's obviously got the job done. You can't. What are you going to sit here and to kind of take away from it? 
But then you you kind of like look around the league and you kind of like look at a lot of other of the other teams, which I know we're about to get into here in a minute with the Pacers. And you just kind of like look and you just say, really, that one of you guys could have beaten this Bulls team. <laughs> well, before we before we jump to the Pacers, doesn't that give him a little bit of, you know, of Credence's argument that that was his best version of himself? The fact that he had he had he was carrying Jason Caffey, uh, you know, Scott Burrell and the like to, you know, to, to keep them afloat and that they end up in first place after, you know, Scotty missing more than half the season with guys like Luke Longley, Judd Bushler, and all these guys that weren't really bringing much to the table, and Michael was able to carry that bunch all the way to the first seed in the Eastern Conference and then, then to the finals? Doesn't that give him you know, the, the, the evidence that all you need to know that that was the best version of himself? I don't know. Like, okay, so like we're, we're, we're kind of going through this a little bit right now, right, where like LeBron James has completely remade himself, right? And he's talked about how his game – keeps evolving and the game has slowed down to him uh to the point where like this is the smartest version of lebron that we that we have ever seen okay well the smartest version of lebron is a guy that's leading the league in assists going putting up like 27 10 and 10s all the time like if michael jordan were to sit here today and tell you this is the best version of myself while at the same time averaging fewer points and assists than he has in over a decade and shooting the worst that he's ever shot, you would you would kind of look at him like a little bit a little bit sideways, right? I would, but I don't know. I just I I just don't. No, no, I'm not calling him a liar. I, I think it's just it, it's it's a I think it's a misrepresentation to say that that's the best version. Uh, of Michael Jordan, the basketball player. Maybe, maybe it's the smartest version. Maybe it's it's uh, Jordan at his best as a leader. Maybe that's the best teammate he's ever been. Uh, maybe that's the best he's ever been at, at kind of dealing successfully with adversity uh, on the court. But I, I don't think that you can look at 1998 Michael Jordan and then you just you just scroll through some of those video game years in like the late 80s and early 90s. Like there's just there's not a comparison. He is not that's not the best version of Michael Jordan in 1998, which is fine. The best version of Michael Jordan in 1998, it was still good enough to freaking win another title. So it, it ultimately does he matter. win. Not only did he win another title, he won MVP that year. Ran away with the vote. Really, uh, had had 92 first place votes. Carmelo came second with 20. Uh, one one fast fact in this that really doesn't have anything to do with the last dance, but Tim Duncan finished <laughs> fifth that year as a rookie in, in MVP yeah. voting uh, is is pretty incredible, and he was first team All NBA. Tim Duncan was a bad bad man, but uh, in terms of what Michael Jordan did that year, he, he said he was the best version of himself. Micah disagrees. The man still won MVP. Everyone agreed that he was the best player in the league, regardless of whether he was the best version of himself. Or not, uh, they go through the playoffs in '98 uh, relatively unscathed up until they get to the conference finals uh, and face the Indiana Pacers. Uh, they sweep the Nets, of course, John Calipari's Nets. They they gentlemen sweep the Hornets after B.J. Armstrong goes crazy for one game, but the Pacers uh, are the team that, according to the doc is the team that almost broke the dynasty. I just, I don't even know where to begin. I Sure, they pushed them to seven games like a, a team had it, what, since the 90, 93 Knicks, 92 Knicks, something like that. 
Uh, I don't even think that they're among the 10 best teams that Jordan ever played in the playoffs. And he's going to sit second. there and say that they're 10 the best? best teams. That's disrespectful. Uh, you can say you can say they're not the 10 best teams. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll well, list. Well, you you mean to say you mean to sit here and list 10 teams that are better than the I, Pacers? Because that because myself you know, what, and the what makes for, think you're crazy. What makes for great, the 10 best what, teams? <laughs> What makes for great radio is just people listing off things uh, into <laughs> perpetuity. Okay, they're not there are better. Radio they're not than, right now that have done that for an entire career. Right? They've won. They are not awards doing that. Okay. The, the listen. Okay. The the Pacers. Their their best. Their best player uh, was a guy who couldn't create off the dribble at that point in his career. The best ball handlers are Mark Jackson and Travis Best. They're a really good defensive team with the Davis boys and like Rick Smits was an all star. Okay, but. Here are a bunch of teams that are just flat out better than the 98 Pacers. The 85-86 Celtics, we're not even going to have a conversation. The 89 Pistons, way better. Both of the Jazz teams that the Bulls took out in the NBA Finals, significantly better. Clyde Drexler's Blazers are better. The 85 Bucks, by the way, with Terry Cummings, a 58-win team that gets slept on yeah, all man, the wait time. A second. Wait They're a better a second. team than wait the Pacers. The 90. Second. Hold on, no, I'm not. No, I, no, no, I'm not done yet. The 91 Lakers with Magic. They're better. The 93 Knicks with Ewing and Starks and and Anthony Mason. Those guys are better. The, the Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Sonics are better. There's all sorts of teams uh, and other versions of the bad boys that they play. There, there are at least. 10 better teams than the 98 Pacers that Michael Jordan played at some point in the playoffs. I am not going to say, I'm not going to put words in Michael Jordan's mouth or uh, or anybody that created the documentary's mouth. I am just going to say that I think they were talking about teams that they played in, in, in during the dynasty years. Obviously, we know that the bad boy Pistons were better. Obviously, we know that the, the 86 Celtics were better. I mean, those are no-brainers. Don't tell me about the 85 bucks because only people in Milwaukee would know who's on that team. Don't bring them. Shout out Kane Pittman. <laughs> Don't bring them up at all. Talk about the teams that this okay. this dynasty faced after '91 on. If you want to mention uh, Magic's Lakers, who were old and broken down by the time that Michael beat them, sure. If you want to mention the Portland Trailblazers, the year after that were a pretty good team. They faced in the finals, sure. Barkley Suns won 60 plus games of regular season. He was at the peak of his powers, sure. The Sonics. I'm giving you four teams right there, and then the Jazz five. Where are the other four teams in that dynasty? There's so not ten I, teams I, I have this a, Pacer team. Okay, if you want to say if you want to include it just to the dynasty, we're gonna keep. We're just gonna take out Larry Bird and we're gonna take out the bad boys, and that's fine. Sure, I, I'm okay with that. But to say that this is the best team that they ever went to, the the only reason that they got pushed to seven games is because that '98 Bulls team was by far the worst. Of, of the six championship teams that Chicago had. The the fact that that was a closed series has way more to do with Chicago uh, than it does uh, anything to do with Indiana. I thought that Pacer team, now I'm not saying that they're the best team that the Bulls faced in the playoffs, because I, I, I'm agreeing with you there where it's crazy, but I thought that Pacer team was pretty good for the era that they were in. It's not it's a so, team that won 58 games. You know, they had Larry Bird with all the experience that he's gone through. I, I understand that he wasn't, you know, he was going through it as a as a first time coach going through the playoffs, but his bench was pretty good. Rick Carlisle and, and, and smart minds are on his bench, so he could lean on them. And they were built perfectly to challenge Michael Jordan. We talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, how Jordan's teams never really truly faced anyone in the front court worth anything other than Patrick Ewing uh, in those in those championship years. 
and and this was a Pacer team that had the Davis boys. Rick Smith was dominating in that in that playoff series, and then they had Reggie Miller. I okay. I'm I'm glad you brought up my guy Reggie Miller because we're not going to sit here and talk about the Pacers without me <laughs> besmirching my favorite NBA player of all time. For just <laughs> let me entertain myself for just a minute here. So uh, Reggie Miller has this reputation as this just stone cold clutch killer, right? This late game assassin. Rightfully, some might say rightfully earned, right? Like he's got eight points in nine seconds. He's got the game winner against the Bulls in this series. He's got got a couple of moments that, that truly do stand the test of time. That if you're a kid that doesn't know anything about the Pacers and you go to YouTube and you type in Reggie Miller and all these clutch moments are going to come up. And like he's one of the best trash talkers of all time, which which only serves to sort of magnify those moments a little bit. So that 97-98 season, and I say this only because I think it's important to just realize uh, the, the style with which they succeeded with Reggie as their guy. He's not a give the ball to him, get out of his way, let him make something out of nothing and create. It's a completely manufactured offense. It's kind of like, like I, you're going to laugh. I don't mean, I honestly do not mean this as disrespectful. He's like building a team around Reggie Miller in the NBA is like the college version of when Duke built their teams around JJ Redick. Right, like JJ Redick was one of the three best players in the entire country, but everything was manufactured. It's okay. We got to run run him off five different screens to get him over to get him open. We 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 have a, a guy that there's a fundamental flaw where if you can stay attached at the hip, uh, you can kind of do some things with that. 97-98 season, Reggie Miller ranked third in the NBA in clutch scoring. Okay, the only two guys that scored more points and the clutch than him were Michael Jordan uh, and a young Stefan Marbury. Of, of all of his made baskets in the clutch the entire season, and there's over 30 of them, only five of them were unassisted the entire year, okay? He also ranked third on his team in clutch time assists behind Mark Jackson and Travis Best, had almost 50% more turnovers uh, in those big moments than he, than he did assists. So it's not like a, we're going to give the ball to Reggie Miller and let him go toe-to-toe with Michael Jordan. It's no, we have one, we have two guys on our team that could dribble a basketball. And our only way to stay in this is to just run Reggie Miller 10 miles a game off of screens in hopes he gets a little bit open. You're, you're, first of all, you're conveniently forgetting that Jalen Rose was also on that team. Was a pretty good ball. Oh, Jalen isn't Jalen yet, though. As was. He's not no, Jalen yet. But you're, you're, I'm saying he's a good ball ball handler. Is what I'm saying. You're, you're saying that they only had two guys that could handle the rock, and I'm telling you, there's more. Jalen Rose was a okay, good ball three. handler at the time. Uh, and by the way, why are you killing them for for running a system that won them 58 games and got them to one game a couple minutes just, from the there, finals? That's not a, their fault. That okay. the rest of the league no, can't but, stop but, that. No, but it's it's entirely predictable then when you're in game seven and it's the fourth quarter and Reggie Miller only takes one shot because he has to get open and he can't get open, right? Like it's not a, like it's a, they, you go back and watch that game seven. Uh, there are so many times like Reggie Miller will, he'll get a rebound or he'll get a loose ball or whatever and it's immediately turn and find Mark Jackson. Okay, let's go run this set that takes 20 seconds uh, and the only time he shoots in the entire fourth quarter, he finally gets free, and and, and Dennis Rodman blocks it, and it's an air ball. Like he, he, there's just it, it's uh, yeah. a fun it's a fundamental flaw of building a team around somebody that can't do anything himself off the off the. Okay, we're we're done talking about Reggie Miller's deficiencies <laughs> as a 
clutch time killer with the ball. This is dumb. This is way too much Reggie Miller talk. Uh, so all right, so you came they're to not, the conclusion. They're that not the best. Based off the fact they're that they're not they had the best team. set for for their best player, that they weren't the best team that the Bulls the Bulls faced in the playoffs during their championship years. That's what I'm hearing right now, and and that leads you down the path that Reggie Miller just couldn't get it done because he couldn't dribble. He could just run around screens. Correct. Look, if if player tracking data existed in 1998 as it does in 2020, and they played this series over again, we'd be killing Reggie Miller for ranking like six on his team in touches and for only dribbling the ball you know, 13 times. Uh, look, he's 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 a fine player. He's a Hall of Fame player. Uh, ESPN recently ranked him as a top 50 player of all time, which we're not going to go on that. He's a good player, but like you know, he's just. It is what it is. He's the be- If he's the best player in your team, you're not the best team that Michael Jordan beat uh, during those six championship <laughs> runs. Not even close. Come on. All right. Well, Don't what about that. this team then? The Utah Jazz, who they yeah. played in back-to-back years in the NBA Finals. They, uh, they. I mean, if you blinked in the la- in episodes nine and ten, you you probably didn't even realize that they were playing the Utah Jazz. Um, John Stockton, in my opinion, one of the most underrated players in NBA history. Karl Malone, still second all-time scoring uh, in the NBA behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They had a great coach for you know in, in Jerry Sloan. Uh, and they had a nice, a nice team around them, minus the center spot. You could look at the rest of the roster and say that that team was, you know, was was built well, and you know, they, there's a reason why they won 60 games in '98 and had the number one seed overall in the league. And it felt like the Bulls. I mean, it, Doc made it feel like if you didn't know nothing about nothing, Doc made it feel like the it would just a speed bump in the Bulls' way to the uh, to their to their three peat. That was really bizarre, right? Like a team that they that they faced back to back finals that won sixty games both times. A guy that won the MVP over Jordan, and then the next year finishes second, and also has like what maybe one of the three greatest point guards of all time. And they just—they're like a—it's like they're a side note. I don't—I didn't understand that. I neither did. Are I. They, Where do they are, stand I, on your on your pecking order though for for great teams? Because me, I think that they're the—I'll put them as the second best team that that Jordan played in the finals. Whatever version you want to take of of the two teams that went, uh, they're the second best team, only behind the Suns. I, I like Barkley's Suns. Yeah, Barkley's Suns. That, that team. That team was already like one of the best teams in the West, and then like added prime Charles Barkley. They they could beat you in a bunch of different ways. They had shooters. They could they could rebound. They could play fast, play slow. Uh, I I agree with you. That that Suns team. Look, I'm a big. You know me and my numbers. I I like to I like to bust out the spreadsheets and the calculators. And there's a bunch of numbers that say that the Suns are not the best team that uh, that Chicago faced in the finals. I I agree with you. I think it is. Uh, I think it is. Uh, them, but I, I think turning the attention back on uh, that Jazz team that was that was kind of like oddly like spurned uh, in how this whole documentary was shown. Is this to you the the best team that never won an NBA title? Like you That's you think tough. about like eras like eras uh, of players, right? So like it's like you. I don't I I don't know if there's another one that I would kind of put on that level that was. And not and and this is not specific to any one season, right? So it's not like a are the '98 Jazz the best team that never won a title? There's a lot of really good teams that never won. I just mean viewing kind of like the Malone and Stockton Jazz as one entity. Is that the best team that never won a title? 
I think I, I get what your question is. Your question is more so not so we're not counting like the seventy three win Warriors because they they won as a team like a, their core exactly. won as a unit the year before and they would win after that. Exactly, you're counting the yeah. core uh, not winning. It's either the Jazz or the Sacramento Kings, uh, the early two thousand Sacramento Kings with the with Chris Webber, Peja Stojakovic, Mike Bibby. I think that team. I mean, they came so close so many times to just getting to the finals, and they weren't able to get there. The Jazz were able to get there, so so maybe people have them higher up in mind. But I that Sacramento Kings team is a championship team if they don't run into you know Shaq and Kobe. Yeah, that that team's that team's depth is on a whole nother level. Like what Jeff Hornacek's the best player or the third best player on this Jazz team, probably right, and he's what yeah. the sixth seventh best guy on that on those kings teams I, I do remember yeah. i remember when we uh you know about i i think in the maybe the week or two before the last dance we did a a pod where we did a deep dive on the 98 jazz and, and we talked a little bit about then about whether or not like the case for this group being the best team that never won a title and i remember looking up at the time that if you take every team in nba history that won 60 games in back-to-back seasons okay at some point in the couple of years leading up to or a couple of years after that or in those two seasons, that all of those teams won titles. This is the only group that never did. Like even like if you wanted to look at like like the, the mid-2000s Dallas Mavericks, right? When Dirk wins MVP and they have another great year uh, and, and they have these, these years where they win 60 back-to-back, they get bounced. Even the, that, like that team would come back three years later and like won a title. You still kind of give the 2011 Mavericks a championship that kind of gets grandfathered into those 60 win teams. The Jazz are the only team ever that won 60 in back to back years and basically don't have any rings to show for it. That's that's incredible. I mean, that's to think of, and and that's why I, I found it weird that they didn't give him much time in the doc. In the doc, I mean, it wasn't like the Jazz were chopped liver. And I understood, you know, I understand if you're if you're you know the spotlights on MJ and the Bulls, you're going to tell a little bit more about that story. But we've had ten parts here. It wasn't like we're we're doing a two hour uh, you know quick documentary. We've had ten parts, ten hours. You couldn't give the Jazz twenty minutes to build up how good these guys were and how much. You know how hard it was. You want to spend time on and telling a lie about five guys delivering a pizza to the door? Knock it off. <laughs> by, by the way, there's no way that that was five, five guys. Oh, there's way more to that story that we got. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't <laughs> believe that. Without going in, without going into no, without going into pizza pizza, uh, pizza box conspiracy theories, <laughs> I, I do think like part part of it is just because of the characters involved. Because like. Like Carl Malone's a really soft-stated kind of under like not he's not an understated guy, he's a very opinionated guy, but like Carl Malone is not a captivating uh personality in the sense that like Charles Barkley or Gary Payton or you know, you know Reggie Miller, some of these guys that get a lot more screen time. Same thing for John Stockton, same thing for Jerry Sloan, right? So like you're not gonna have you're not going to have like Carl Malone sitting there telling the camera about how much better they were than the Bulls, and then Michael Jordan sitting there watching on his iPad, uh, making memeable moments about it, right? So, like, part of that is just kind of the bland personality and nature of just what makes for good television, I guess. But I'm with you. They 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 should have gotten a lot more love. Just to kind of like how last week we talked about how. Uh, like Sean Kemp, like didn't get talked to. I don't think his name got mentioned once 
when they talked about the 96 finals, even though he might have been the best player in the series. It's, uh, there's a, there's a, there are a couple of decisions made throughout the course of the last dance that, in hindsight, you kind of look at a little bit odd that, that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Sean Kemp had two finals MVP votes uh, in, in a series that they were down 3-0 in. I mean, if, and, and you don't even mention his name. It's nuts. crazy. The, the one thing, though, about the Jazz that I, I will say, and, and we'll move on here, the uh, the fact that Jordan, you know, admits to, you know, after, after the celebration, and this isn't the present-day footage that I'm talking about here, when he's in, the, in his room playing piano with the entourage uh, after winning the championship, and they're filming that part, and the fact that he admits to that entourage that he was terrified that Scotty, when Scottie Pippen went out of the game that, you know, they could lose there shows me all I need to know about the respect he had for the Utah Jazz. Any other team, Jordan's not worried at all. But the fact that he lost, you know, he knew that he might not have Scotty, uh, you know, for for the foreseeable future in that game, and he might not be able to come back, and that he admitted to fear of losing the game showed me how much respect he had for the Utah Jazz. So uh, I, that's why I found it strange that you know, if he had that sort of respect in the moment, clearly he 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 believed that this team was. Uh, you know, good enough to compete and possibly knock them off their perch. Instead, we spent you know, you know, minutes talking about the, the Pacers <laughs> team uh, instead, and and, oh, and, and and the pizza that they should have just you know ordered DiGiorno with. But that, that's it. Reggie Miller uh, just it just slightly better Jeff Hornacek. <laughs> this is disrespectful. <laughs> that's so disrespectful. Uh, let's move on. Uh, it, so the, so the doc ends with. Um, Michael kind of saying so, in, in not so many words that he believes that the Bulls should have had a chance to defend their title in 1999 uh, and that would have been a chance for them to four-peat that year and said that everybody uh, to a man probably would have signed a one-year deal just for the opportunity to go at it one more time. Uh, we on NBA.com, CA.NBA.com, we uh, discuss whether or not the Bulls would have won in 1999 if they kept the exact same team. We're not taking trades into accounts or anything like that. The exact same team that they had in 98 come back in the shortened season, by the way, in 99, a season that saw the San Antonio Spurs uh, hoist Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of it. Uh, and and everyone, I think, except for me, uh, was was on board with the, with the Bulls winning the uh, championship that year. Nah, man, you're talking you're talking to the one guy uh, that that sided with you. I I, oh, I honestly don't beautiful. even think that, that that they I don't think they would have. All right, this this might be going a little hot. I'm not sure that they even get particularly close. Like we we both both you and I in there talked about how like they just they just never played anyone remotely on the same level as Tim Duncan and David Robinson when it comes to formidable front courts. I mean, it, you go through the list of centers that they placed in. The, in the finals, it's Vladi Divac, Kevin Duckworth, Oliver Miller, uh, Steve Scheffler, and Irvin Johnson. There's Greg Ostertag is in there. Like it just, uh, Mark West. It just like it. There's just no comparison. Uh, yeah. I understand that they didn't exactly have a whole lot on the wing. Like Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston went nuts uh, in the finals. So good lord, like who knows what what Michael Jordan would and Scottie Pippen would have done. But I'm I'm not sure they even would have gotten there. Like they that team needed seven to get past uh, a Pacers team that we you know, we could agree to disagree on how good that team was, but I just like you look like the Miami Heat were really good in that lockout shortened season. Um, I, the Knicks are they're kind of like a 
not like a punchline for getting to the final. Like everyone thinks of the Knicks as I can't believe they made the finals as an eight seed. But then you look at the actual team and like they're pretty deep. They obviously don't have anyone that's on Jordan's level, but like their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth best players are probably all better uh, than than kind of the, the comparable level on Chicago. Uh, and the Indiana's, you know, they're, they're fine. I think Indiana would have been better positioned in 99 uh, to beat them than they were in 98. So I don't know. I, I, I would actually point to, I think, like four or five or maybe even six teams league-wide that would have had a better shot than the Bulls of winning it all in 99. Yeah, I agree. And, and if you want to talk me into the Bulls being able to get past the East and get to the Finals – they're not beating that Spurs team. Like, I'm sorry. I, I mean, they're just not. Tim Duncan is, is an incredible player that Dennis Rodman would have had all types of trouble with. And if you switch him off of Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman had the, the luxury. Uh, uh, the two times he faced Carl Malone in the finals, he had the luxury of leaving Carl Malone to, to, to Luke Longley for stretches of the game. Obviously, Carl Malone would kill Luke Longley, but he had just the luxury of, of, of leaving Carl to, to be guarded by Luke Longley, and, and, and he had to guard like Greg Foster or, uh, or, or <laughs> Antoine Carr. Like, it wasn't the, the, the caliber of player that David Robinson is. And if you can say that David Robinson lost a step at that point of his career, he was still an all-star. He was still a really good player, yeah. still giving you a double-double. And also, his numbers fell because he realized at that point that to, you know, to, to lead this team, Tim Duncan would have to be the go-to guy. And he was okay with stepping aside and allowing that to happen and focusing more on the defensive end of the floor. And I think you know the the rim protection that they would have had because you you look at the, the the teams that they played in the finals I'm talking about the Bulls the teams that they played in the finals there weren't too many rim protectors uh in those years that they were going to the finals like they, you, you talk about how great of uh, power forwards they were Barkley wasn't protecting the rim you know Sean Kemp was super athletic but he wasn't known for his defense and Karl Malone wasn't wasn't meeting anyone at the summit so it was they were easily you know, able to get to the rim. Michael was able to get to the rim constantly. Uh, you know, Scotty was able to get to the rim constantly. That would not have happened against the San Antonio Spurs. And I think the one thing that people don't talk about, because at the time, obviously, he wasn't Greg Popovich yet, but Greg Popovich, we know now, was a really good coach. And that would have been, uh, you know, right on par with what we saw Phil Jackson from an X's and O standpoint. He would have figured out a way to try and neutralize Michael and Scotty. So I, I believe that the Spurs would have still won the championship in 99, even if the Bulls had made it to the finals that year. Yeah, I mean, for that series, Duncan is like 27 and 14, playing 46 minutes a night. Him and Robinson combined average over five blocks a game. I mean, Duncan's doing that against Marcus Camby, who is, you know, a, you know never made an all-star team. But Marcus Camby's like no slouch either uh, when it comes to defending inside. I, I just... Uh, there's there's just there's just no way that the Bulls would have been able to hang with those two guys. And by the way, say what you want about Marcus Camby. Uh, he's not the defender that Dennis Rodman was at Dennis Rodman's peak. But at that point in his career, he was way more athletic than Dennis Rodman was. Rodman was finished by that point. Finished. Yeah. Look, I, Jordan, you know, he kind of comes off uh, at the end of the documentary as being sort of like dismayed, annoyed. Uh, disappointed that they weren't able to go defend that title, right? It's like, we, we've we earned the opportunity to defend what's ours, right? Uh, well, you know, and, 
the first time around, he kind of took that opportunity away from himself by uh, by retiring. Uh, and then the second time, look, how many times does just the phrase like, like you could just say without any context whatsoever, six and zero, oh, and people know immediately what you're talking about, right? It's the finals record. It's Michael Jordan, uh, the aura of invincibility. Every single great team that has ever gone through the NBA at some at some point or another lost, right? Like the only exception is probably Bill Russell, who retires after winning what one in, in 69. They beat the Lakers and Jerry West. But like uh, Shaq and Kobe lose, like Larry Bird and the Celtics lose, Magic and the Lakers lose, LeBron and Dwayne Wade on the Heat, they lose. All Every great team loses and are they get knocked off. Michael Jordan uh, was never knocked off. He just got knocked off by retirement. And so, like, I think had they brought in everyone back on one-year deals and, and they would have lost, uh, I, I think we would actually even view the Bulls a little bit differently uh, than we do, not necessarily holding it against them that they didn't win a seventh title. But I think kind of what makes that six feel so special is that they they basically went six for six. Uh, you know, we won't talk about what happened in 95, uh, but you, you, you kind of get what I'm saying that there. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. I, I, you're right. Every, every great dynasty other than the bulls in the nineties and you know, Bill Russell Celtics came to an, a, a crashing end, uh, at some point, but our lasting memories is of them walking off the floor with their hands held, uh, you know, with victories and rings on their fingers. So you, you think about all the greats, as you said, uh, Hall of Famers. They've all we've all seen them lose at some point and lose on their way out, which is how most careers end. Like uh, that's just how it is. It, it's rare that you end your your career as as a champion. And we're we're obviously not going to mention MJ's time with the Wizards. He still was pretty good, but that wasn't MJ and it wasn't the Bulls. So it, that that doesn't really count to, to the memories that we have of him. It's crazy. It's crazy how that's deleted. Like. You, I, I think about all the other sports, mainly mainly the NFL. Like all the all the great quarterbacks that end their career somewhere else. That's like that's like a a, a punchline and it's remembered well. We we sort of kind of you know look over and gloss over what MJ did with with the Wizards. He was pretty good, but you know we, we choose to just look at his time with the Bulls. Say what you want about a a thirty nine year old Michael Jordan, but he played in all eighty two games and averaged over twenty a game. No I mean, load management I think like, for the 39-year-old. That's crazy. Like, I think, like, Jordan, like, obviously, like, Wizards Jordan is not Bulls Jordan, but I think, like, the idea of, like, Wizards Jordan as a punchline is a little bit oversold because, like, yeah, he's not Michael Jordan, but, like, Michael Jordan, he's probably still one of the 20 best players in the league. Yeah, he, he wasn't, put it this way, he definitely wasn't Patrick Ewing on the Supersonics or or uh, Akeem Olajuwon on the Raptors. Like, he wasn't that level of... Of, of watch. Oh, no, uh, not even that. <laughs> yeah, not, not even close. As we close out here, um, what, did, what did you learn? Uh, anything that you learned? Anything was confirmed for you? Uh, or did you change your mind on any any sort of takes that you had about the 90s Bulls uh, after watching the full 10 uh, episodes? Yeah, I look, the, the, the two things to me that I think stick out a little bit are um, just you hear and i know there's been books written about it and and um articles and and sam smith in, in particular has done a great job chronicling that uh really throughout michael jordan's entire career but i think seeing a lot of the uh the com the the competitive fire and the leadership uh style 
just seeing it on camera and hearing about it in person. I think what was it the end of uh, was it the the end of episode seven where Jordan is talking about how you know I never I never asked any of my teammates. I never asked anyone to do anything that I wasn't willing to do. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win too. I wanted them to be a part of that. And then he breaks down in tears and he's crying about it. Uh, that's that's just like a really lasting. Uh, I, that I will never forget kind of seeing and hearing Michael Jordan in that moment. Um, and then I, I just, I think that these Bulls teams just, I, I still, we talked about the relative strength of, of the team in 98. It's, it's just kind of wild to me that they were able to win six championships. Like I'm coming out of this with far more respect for Michael Jordan than I than I entered with. And that's saying something considering like I'm a Bulls fan. I grew up loving Michael Jordan. He's my favorite player of all time. Like I, I somehow I, I come out of this like holding him in even higher regard than I did uh prior to this 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 ten arc uh ten arc documentary. That's interesting. That's the first time I've ever heard you say that. So that's uh, that's news to me. That's not something I learned about you. Um, I learned that Jerry Krause is is a better GM and should have gotten more credit throughout the documentary for for helping build that team. Uh, you know, he, uh, granted, he he inherited Michael Jordan. Like when he shows up, Michael Jordan's already on the roster, and we already know that this guy's going to be. We don't know if he's going to be the greatest of all time, but we know that he's going to be a star by the time Jerry Krause shows up. And his job is to build the team around that talent and that's not an easy thing to do we've seen that multiple times in recent in recent years where uh you know you look at lebron it's tough to build a team around lebron it's not easy to just find the right guys to fit around him it wasn't easy to just find guys that that would fit around you know katie and westbrook when they were in oklahoma city um it's very hard to find guys to fit around stars and even back then when movement, you know, free agency wasn't a major thing. Guys weren't trying to team up, so to speak, and play together. Jerry Krause had to go out and just find talent that would be pieces to the puzzle. And not only that, he had to find a coach that would, you know, find a way to get through to Michael. They went through a couple of coaches before they got to Phil. It wasn't like Phil Jackson just shows up. You know, Phil Jackson was, I think, the fourth coach at that point of, of Michael's career in, in a very short period of time uh, to, to find a way to get through. And firing Doug Collins at the time he did wasn't a, a popular decision. This is a guy that took them to Game 7 uh, of, a, of a, you know, not Game 7, sorry, but took them to, a, to, a, to a, uh, close to a finals with, uh, with the Detroit Pistons. Like, they, they had everything there, but they needed that extra. And Jerry Krause realized that and, and found Phil Jackson because he's, you know, whatever weird stuff that Phil was talking about would find a way to break through uh, and get through the mic. And, and then the rest is history and, and finding, you know, making the right trades at the right time, trading Charles Oakley, which was, you know, Michael's best friend at the time on the team, wouldn't have been a popular decision for Michael Jordan, but he, he went with it anyway. And, uh, you know, signing a Cliff Levingston, who was a footnote in probably in the Bulls history, but a guy like that, a veteran like that helped them through the playoffs. You look at his numbers, they yeah. weren't great, but having him in the locker room, a guy that can stand up to Michael, that meant something. And uh, I think Jerry Krause, you know, got a, you know, it's unfortunate that he wasn't here to see to see the documentary play out and, and maybe have a, a, a part in it and, and tell his side of the story. But uh, I, I think a lot more people should put some more respect on what he did as the Bulls GM to build that championship and less, less focus on, you know, the way that things broke down. I'm I'm really happy that you mentioned Kraus because I I think that more than anything if if there's uh 
One, you know, first of all, I, I think that it's this is not a documentary in the traditional sense of is completely objective lens. Like, eh, come on, like everything is signed off by Michael Jordan. There's a reason that things are portrayed a certain way in there. Like even going back to the very beginning, talking about uh, the minutes restriction coming back when, you know, in his second year. And he basically like there's a lot of little like half truths and there, one of the things that, that is not even a half-truth, it's a just never even addressed, is like that there, there is not even one iota of an effort paid to defending Jerry Krause at any point by anyone throughout this entire uh, 10-part arc. Everything is, is just about uh, the discord, the dysfunction, how unliked he is, uh, you know, how much kind of kind of like a, a black sheep presence um, and you know, I, I, I wish that I wish that Jerry Krause would have obviously been there to speak for himself, but I wish that there had been someone uh, that could kind of speak in his stead and come to his defense a little bit more because I, I do think he got a raw deal. And you know, we've been there's there's been no games going on, right? We've been uh, churning out all sorts of content on NBA.com about just the last dance in general, and I remember. Looking back into uh, kind of some of the finer details of those Kraus moves, just one little like quick thing that kind of like it didn't even come into fruition, but kind of gives you a glimpse of his genius and how ahead of his time he was. So when uh, when Jerry Kraus makes that trade uh, on draft day to get Scottie Pippen, as part of that trade with the Seattle Supersonics, he includes a future pick swap but also puts protections on the pick swap just in case the Bulls would have like come back and won the lottery. They wouldn't have gotten screwed. There are GMs uh, like five years ago that aren't doing that. Like Jerry Krause was, was, was doing things in the front office uh, that guys league wide uh, had not, did not become common practice for another like two and a half decades. There are some front offices that aren't doing that now. So I, I, and you know, that, that is one of those things that never ne- never really amounted to anything but like it's also one of those things that you look back on and you're like oh man like what if what if what if like what if the clippers had not given away the number 1 pick they would have had Kyrie Irving like we wouldn't have ever talked about the bulls in that regard because Jerry Krause always protected them from the things that nobody else could even see coming so I wholeheartedly agree with you uh, that Jerry Krause deserves a lot more respect than sort of what's uh, kind of what's been shown uh, throughout the last uh, you know month month and change. Yeah, and the, uh, you mentioned Sam Smith. I'm reading I'm reading his book uh, Jordan Rules, and in that book he talks about how other GMs didn't even really want to deal with Jerry Krause because it felt like. Uh, he would get the better end of deals and then he would brag about it behind closed doors and it, it would leak out to them and, and they just didn't want to sign with him and uh, things like that. And, and even some agents, uh, you know, didn't even want to bring their clients because they felt like they were going to get lesser you know, value for, for their guys because Krauss always found a way to, to you know, get guys on a, on a, on a, that were probably max players, so to speak, at the time on on you know team friendly deals. So, uh, you know, he's, he's I, like I the new he, uh, he or it, it's it's kind of like the the running joke about like how like right now like if uh, if Danny Ainge if you see like Danny Ainge's number on your phone you don't answer <laughs> because you know he's gonna talk you into making a trade that you don't want to make. It's like. Danny Ainge is stealing from uh, Jerry Krause's playbook in that in that regard. Hundred percent. And and imagine if Danny Ainge is able to get 
you know, uh, six championships in a in a in a decade. That would have been, you know, we, we would put him on Mount Rushmore of, of the greatest execs of all time. <laughs> so that that's uh that's that's my takeaway from uh, from Jerry Cross. He is in the Hall of Fame, so at least he got uh you know others recognized his his greatness in terms of what he was able to build with the dynasty. I know it fell apart, and the Bills the the, the Bulls rather are still uh, rebuilding. The Bills too. Uh, the Bulls are still rebuilding from uh, from the nineties, but. Um, you know, it, it's uh, he, he he got them to a place that I don't think many uh, thought they would get to, especially uh, at later on in Michael's career. Um, there you have it, NBA Sound System Live. We we do it on Tuesdays at three Eastern. Uh, you can find it on NBA.com globally. If you haven't, please rate, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, and, and, and drop a comment. That helps us out a ton. There's a ton of feed, uh, information in there for you. There's also episodes. Uh, we, we talked about the 98 Jazz. That's an episode I think you guys should go back and listen to if you want to hear about how good that team was. We did a full breakdown of that season uh, leading up to the finals in 98, the finals that they probably should have won uh, and didn't. And we'll tell you exactly why as we break that down in the podcast for you. Go back in the archives and do that. Uh, For Micah Adams, I am Carlin Gay. We will see you right back here next week on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on NBA Sound System, L-I-V-E Live.